Oh, oh yes. When I was in Bible college, when you go to Bible college, there's some weirdos. Um, I was one of them. But uh, um, if you're weird before you're saved, you're likely weird after you're saved too. I think that's just the principle. But they talked about that concept of eating God's word, and this guy bought a cheap Bible online and ate a page of it every day. That is not what we're asking you to do. Uh, <laughs> Right, doctors? We're not telling them to eat paper, okay? It's, uh, you, can, you can visit Dr. O and Dr. Deo a different day, a different way, right? You don't have to eat paper to get there. So, <laughs> uh, But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 4 today. Uh, I'm just kind of doing a little bit of a two-part series, if you want to call it that, um, because where we're heading in 1 Corinthians is very important, and I know that that these services, uh, you know, Christmas Eve services and New Year's Day services, they're always, they always tend to be a little bit lighter. And I want as many people in our church present for these next few chapters. So that's my admiration to you. Don't miss another Sunday. No, I'm kidding. I'm just joking. But uh, we're heading into some really good stuff in 1 Corinthians, and I want us to go through it. So uh, we're going to be talking for this Sunday and next Sunday about this idea of living our life today in light of tomorrow or in light of the future? How are we to live today in light of what is coming? So this morning, we're going to focus on the life that God calls us to live today. And then next week, we're going to focus on what the future holds. We're going to talk about eschatology and the end times. So all of you, you know, map drawers of the end times, when Jesus coming back, 88 reasons in 1988, right? That didn't happen. Um, so we're going to be talking about uh, future things next week. I'm not going to get weird. I promise you that. But we, are, we need the future things. We need the return of Christ in our minds because that does dictate how we live and make choices today. Amen? So that's where we're going to be at for this Sunday and next. So without further ado, let's begin reading in 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 9. I hope you have your Bibles. Uh, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verse 9. Let me say that correctly. Now concerning brotherly, lo uh, brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outside and be dependent on no one. Amen? May God bless the reading of his words. Oftentimes, we say things like, hey, I don't care what people think about me. Uh, you do you, I'll do me, I'll do what makes me happy, you do what makes you happy. And, and I agree with that sentiment, but at the same time, we must be concerned about our reputation as men and women, as Christian. Having a good reputation is something that we should desire to have. I know what the thing is. I don't care what you think, but you should, to some degree, care what people think because both of those things are true. At some point, yeah, you can't care what people think about you. But on some point, too, you have to make sure that as a follower of Christ, your reputation is good. 
And when you hold to both of these truths, it can feel like a tension. It can feel like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth at times. And we need to find the happy balance between not worrying about what people think about us and at the same time holding to the fact that there are degrees in which it does matter what people think of us. Not in terms of the smaller, non-issue things like the clothing you wear or the music you listen to or your hairstyle. You know, coming to Drumheller, I was, I swear, I was the only man who wore sweaters with shirts and not cowboy hats, right? And people looked at me strange, like, who is this guy wearing brown shoes with his blue jeans, you know? What's going on? I don't care, right? We don't, we don't have to worry about those things, but we should be worried about our character, And that's what we're going to look at. A few key areas where we should be shining as lights of an example in our character. But before we get to those, the big idea that we have today is a life of love blesses the world and builds a reputation that glorifies God. Hear what I'm saying. A life of love, not a principle of love, Not a philosophy of love, not an ideology of love, but a life of love, living love, will build you a reputation that ultimately glorifies God. And the way we're going to look at this and explore this is we're going to look at it in three parts. We're going to look at this scripture broken into loving big, living quietly, and laboring hard. These are the three basic components of a life that God wants us as Christians in this world to live. To love big, to live quietly, and to labor hard. So let's start with number one. Love big. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 10 says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Uh, for, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. These Christians in this church in Thessalonica, they exemplified what it means to be a people of love. And not just love in some general sense, but true Christian love, or as they're calling it, brotherly love. This is familial, a family love, a love that is rooted in who we are, right? And not in what we do. If we're truly going to reflect Christ's love, we should not have conditions upon our love. Because you're always your brother's brother. You're always your sister's sister, no matter what they do. And my brother, I know he's watching online right now, so there's a lot you need to clean up, Ken. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. He did text me that he was watching, so I had to call him out there. But no matter what you do, Your brother is your brother. Your sister is your sister. You can say they're not, but it doesn't change the fact that you are family. You don't get to choose your family, and the same principle applies to your Christian family, your church family. You don't get to choose them, but you are called to love them. This is brotherly love, a Christian love. Look at what Romans 10, uh, 12, 10 says. It says, love one another with brotherly affection, undo one uh, outdo, sorry, (laughs) one another in showing honor. Outdo. We always try to upstage people with how good and great we are, but why don't you outdo upstage people with how much you love them? Make that a competition. And not just doing things that, that seem right or saying the right thing, but that we truly have an affection that produces feelings that give birth 
to actions towards the individuals within this church and community. And this kind of love, this brotherly love, is such an important issue that Jesus even says in John 12, 35, he says, by this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, by this love that you have for one another. You have learned how to walk in love. Now listen, this love that we see in verses 9 and 10 of our Thessalonians passage, this love that we're seeing in this church is a broad love. It's a big love. It's an expansive love. These brothers and sisters aren't just loving the individuals who make up their life group. These individuals are not just loving the people that make up their circle of friends. These brothers and sisters are loving across the board. And when they hear of other Christians in other parts of Macedonia, they are loving on those people. They don't see them as competition. When they hear of testimonies about others coming to faith in other churches, they rejoice. When they hear words of concern and caution and prayer requests, their hearts truly break. They love beyond their own circle of Christianity in a way that people can feel and tell and see. Paul could see it. Paul could feel it. And you see, our tendency in the modern church is to split up into little tribes and camps within the church. Now, I'm not talking about Fellowship Baptist Church. That's a different issue when we break up in little tribes within our church. I'm talking about the universal church of all around the world. We're Baptists, aren't we? So that means we break up into a little group called Baptists. But guess what? You don't have to be a Baptist to get to heaven. You don't. We're just one little uh, pocket of Christianity, and, and, and it's important. I actually think denominations are a very healthy thing when they're done properly. I'll give you my opinions on that another day. So I don't think there's anything wrong with us dividing up into these little camps around certain convictions that we hold. I think that's important. But here's the issue. It becomes easy for us just to love the people within this church. I love this church. And maybe you love this church, unless you don't and you're just here and you hate us. I don't know why you're still here. But, but hey, to each their own. But I love this church. Not just the institution, not the building, even though we do have a gorgeous building, right? I love you. I love the people that make up this church. And when you're not here, like many of you who are traveling, I miss you. Truly, I do. I can't wait to see you guys on Sunday. I, I love this church, and I love this church because this is where I have found true love and true acceptance. You have genuine affection for one another. I see it, and I feel it at all of our events. You have a genuine interest in each other's lives and in those who come into our church. I see it. You share the gospel. I see you sharing your life. Sure, you're not perfect in it, neither am I. We never will be perfect in that. But we're doing our best. And that's what matters. It's not just that you guys are right or hold to the right doctrines. Now, that's important. But you guys are also real, real, down to earth. And I love that about you. And maybe it's easy when you have a really healthy church like we have. We have a very healthy church. And, 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 and it go against common belief. Healthy churches doesn't mean there's not conflict. Healthy churches doesn't mean there's not tension. Because when we make the word of God our central focus, and as James says, as we look into the perfect mirror, guess what's going to come out? All the ugly. All right, we're going to squeeze it out of us, kind of like when grapes are squeezed and wine comes out, right? And, and, and so we're going to have these issues. But here's what the markings of a healthy church is. One of them is that we deal with those issues. We don't sweep them under the rug. 
You don't get to fly under the radar here. We want to see you grow in Christ. So it's easy to love us when we have a healthy atmosphere, but we are Baptists and we love each other because we worship the same, we talk the same, we, we don't all look the same. Some of you are a lot better looking than I am, right? But, but we're, we're alike. But can we say the same thing about the Pentecostals? Do we love the Pentecostals? Is it easy to love the Pentecostals? Do we love the Lutherans in our community? Is it easy for us to love the Lutherans? What about the Nazarenes? Do we love the Nazarenes, the people who attend here? What about the people who make up the Alliance Church? Do we love those people or do we see them as enemies? Do we see them as competition? I mean, how do you feel in your hearts towards brothers and sisters across Drumheller who are confessing in a relationship with Christ who probably do things a little bit different than we do and maybe even believe some of the secondary doctrines a little bit different than we do, right? There are important doctrines that we have to agree on, right? Like Jesus is Lord, that he was born of a virgin, things like that. But there's secondary doctrines that, that make up denominations that we shouldn't, though, divide over. Sure, we're going to worship a little differently, but we should love each other. No one's going to hell over these secondary doctrines. And so do we love the people who make up the church of Drumheller? Or do we just find it easy to love us here at Fellowship Baptist Church? How do we treat those who make up other churches or who believe a little differently than us? Do we mock them? Do we make fun of them? And what if they're actually flat out wrong on something? Like, it's not a preference thing at this point, but they're actually missing the mark completely. There should, I would argue, should still be a kind of affection towards those people because we love them and we want to give them the truth. We want to help them see it. And if we just come down as hard-nosed people, we're not going to have any type of relationship to show them the gospel. What I love about our church is that we, is how different we all are. If you look around on an average Sunday, there's a mix of young and old. There's a mix of married and unmarried. There's a mix of rich and poor. There's people who root for the Oilers and those who root for the Flames. And then there's the true Christians who root for Montreal, like Brian and I, right? So if you want into the third layer of heaven, switch your team, okay? But so we have a mix of people. But what's amazing is with all this diversity and all these differences and all these socionomic backgrounds that are different, we are still characterized by the same love, which is the love of Christ. And how is that? Because a lot of us, we weren't taught this at home. Maybe you were. Maybe you were fortunate to have parents who instilled this into you, but a lot of you, I know you didn't. So where did this come from? Well, there's only one explanation, how love could be a reality within this church with all of us, with all of our differences, with all of our opinions, with all of our different backgrounds. The answer is is that you learned it from God. Look at what verse 9 says. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Look at what 1 John 4.10 says. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is love. We didn't invent love. A Hollywood writer didn't come, hey, I'm going to write this really cool movie, and boom, now there's this idea of love. We didn't figure out love. Humans are not the origins of love. God is the origin of love. He is what love is, what true love is, and because he is love, he has sent his son in his love for us to satisfy the wrath of God towards our sins so that we, unholy people, could be made holy and be reconciled to God. 
Keep reading in that first John passage. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Amen? No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Understand what John is saying here. He's saying you and I, Christians, are called and equipped to love because God has loved us first and has taught us love by the death of his son, meaning that God loved us sacrificially, and we as Christians are to love each other sacrificially. Through submission and service, through self-denial, Jesus loved us to the point of death, even death upon a cross. And we are to serve each other and love each other that way. That we would lay down our lives for each other and not let our opinions and our words become barriers to our love. And that sacrifice that Jesus gave wasn't just an example. It clearly is an example. But you have to remember, it's more than an example. It's the very death that reconciled unholy people to God, made us righteous. And that's our calling to be a people of reconciliation who have learned love from God. We are to reconcile lost sinners to God through the ministry of the word. And we're also, when there's tears within our church and relationships, we are to bring about reconciliation as an example that Christ set for us. This is the gospel, church, that we preach. This is the gospel that we teach. This is the gospel that we live. And the gospel can be summed up in the fact that God loves failures and sinners like you and me. Isn't that beautiful? I know when we start talking about love, it's easy to tune out. Like, come on, pastor. I've been in church for X amount of years. I have heard every sermon on love. I get it. We're supposed to love one another already. It's the great commandment. Can I just go home and eat more cheese, okay? And it's easy when, you're, when you come to these sermons, when you come to Scripture about things that you're familiar with, it's easy to t- tune this out. But it's often the things that we think we have a grip on that we need to be more focused on because we come inoculated to the truth. We can't tune this out, church. What we see here in Thessalonica is a group that is doing a good job at loving each other, doing so good that they get a call out from the Apostle Paul. He says, great job. You're loving in a way that's an example to all churches in Macedonia. And what does he say? Well, I'll take the next Sunday off. No, he says, do it more. Keep doing it. You can always love more. This is to the church that's setting an example. Do it more, he says, and more and more and more. So when I tell us, church, that we need to grow in our understanding of love, and I think we are doing a really good job at that, but we have to be careful and examine our hearts and our relationships, not just to make sure that our relationships are okay, but that our hearts and our relationships are okay. We can always grow in love. Our hearts can always grow cold towards individuals, and we have to be careful. In other words, we have to preach this gospel to ourselves. Preach it every day to ourselves. And, and, and oftentimes we have to preach it to the choir. We used to have a choir that stood on all these risers. I don't know if many of you know that, right? And the choir would be upstage with the preacher. I don't know about here, but I'm in most churches, right? And so the, the, the term is you got to preach to the ones who are evidently the ones who know what's going on because they've been in the church. A lot of you, you're in the choir. You've been in church for a long, long time. And you, most of you, can kind of guess what I'm going to say before I say it. As long as I'm keeping it biblical, there's no real surprises from this pulpit. 
I'm not coming up with new heresies each week. That's a different church. No, I'm kidding. But, but <laughs> not in Drumheller, or somewhere else. But, <laughs> but we have to preach to the choir because the choir is still sinners. You see, the choir tends to get inoculated by the truth because we become so familiar with it. And familiarity can kill your love for God if you're not careful. It's kind of like when we hear a passage like John 3.16. It doesn't tend to move us to awe anymore. Even though it's communicating one of the most important teachings of God's love and his death for us. We sort of just rattle it off, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we just sort of throw it out there like it isn't the word of God. Like it isn't the very words of God that transform our souls and changes our hearts. We need to hear the truth of God's word even when it's familiar. And we need to strive to hear it with fresh ears. Hear that the scripture is commanding us, Fellowship Baptist Church, to love big. Hear that with fresh ears. For God so loved the world. What does that mean? For God so loved you. You have to hear that every day. You have to remind yourself of that every day. You have to meditate on that truth every day. In the picture of meditate, there's like a cow who's chewing its cud. You know what that looks like? They swallow it and throw it back up and chew on it again. Eat God's word, meditate on it, chew on it, extract all the nutrients from it. Marvel at the wonder that God loves sinners, an undeserving sinner like you and me. And if we don't marvel at that, then we're missing the heart of the gospel. And some of us, we need to hear this because we believe the lie that God's love isn't present, it isn't real, that it's not shut on me. I've done too many bad things. I can't make this right. And some of you are in the opposite camp who presume upon God's love like you're entitled to it and you're owed it, that you deserve it and that you've owned it. But scripture tells us, it puts it flat for all of us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't do anything. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, when it says that God gave his son, it doesn't mean like he gives us Jesus with a little bow on him and say, here's my son, please take care of him. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is that God was giving up his son for death. He's giving up his son for death. He came, Jesus came with the intention that he would die that he would be the propitiation for our sins, the things that satisfy the wrath of God to us. The death of Christ wasn't plan B. It's not like he got here and go, whoa, whoa, we got our control. This was, the revelation says that he was crucified from the foundations of the earth. This was plan A all along. For God so loved the world, meaning you, that he gave up his only son for you, and whoever shall believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I thought Dean looked at my notes today in his little talk because you and I will more than likely die. I'm 99.9% .9 sure that everyone in this room one day will die. Now, this isn't a Jim Jones thing. I'm not saying today, okay? Uh, I'm saying one day we will all die. I'm 99% sure of it. But here's the truth. We will not perish. We will not perish. We will not be destroyed in the fires of judgment. We will be received into glory. We will be accepted by God and will be embraced by him. And he will be our savior. He will be our God. And we will be his people and we'll be with our family forever.
And by family, I mean all of you and all the other Christians around the world. We will be with him forever. That's our gospel promise. That's what John 3.16 is saying. And that's where we learn to love. You cannot learn to grow in love if the gospel is not constantly just blowing your mind. This is what we have. Love learned from God. If you see in your own life as you examine, as you look at the perfect mirror of scripture, that there is a breakdown within your life to loving other people, you need to repent. You need to repent. And what that means is you'll not only have to change the way that you interact with somebody, you might actually need to go and seek that person out and be reconciled like yesterday. You need to repent. You might need to go and seek someone out, either ask for their forgiveness or extend your forgiveness if we are going to love big, sacrificially. Nobody likes to admit the wrong, but we're called to. And others of you might not need to be reconciled to somebody right now. You've made it through 2023 without hurting anyone. Good job. But, but, But you might need to take the initiative to talk to other people. To not seclude yourself from the community of the church. Don't be the first person out the door after I sing the doxology. Get to know the people around you. Love them. Love big. Engage with them. Don't use your introversion or or anything else as an excuse not to engage. Invite people into your life. Pray with people. Pray for people. You need to serve people. This is what love does. Love big, FBC, in 2024 and forever. Love big. This is what God has for us, is to love big. The second point and third point are a lot quicker, okay? And the second one is to live quietly. Look at what 1 Thessalonians chapter, or verse 11 says. It says, And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. When Paul tells us to live a quiet life, he's not talking about volume. If he was, Mark Landry would be excluded, okay? He's not here. Where did he go? I told him I was going to say that. Oh, okay. Well, he's not talking about volume, being loud. To live a quiet life, it means to live a life without strife. It means to live a life that is peaceful. And this is a call to a people who do not, uh, for people to not unnecessarily stir up trouble. Or create conflict with brothers and sisters within the church or within the world. This means that we need to be careful with our words and with our actions. How do we engage? How do we interact? What's our goal in our interactions in our relationships with others? Live quietly. Live at peace. Work hard to be at peace with all people. These are the commands of God. We know it. Some people, they're just looking for a fight. We know people like this. They just want to fight. They're always wanting to fight. They don't know how to live in times of peace. They're always stirring the pot. They're looking for controversy. They live on it. They're thrilled on it, and they feed off of it. Others of us, we just live on watching it. We don't want to be involved necessarily, but we're content with pulling up a chair and a bag of popcorn and getting our free entertainment for the week. We enjoy watching and take it all in and cherish it, but to live quietly means that we live peacefully. As Paul says here, it means that you learn to mind your own affairs. Or let me be a little more blunt. Mind your own business. Butt out. Don't be busybodies. Don't inject or insert yourself into situations that you don't belong and you cannot help, where you're just merely the critic and not the counselor. Understand me by what I'm saying. I'm meaning that in part you avoid gossip and slander like it's the plague. You run from it. 
to not talk about people behind their backs, to not badmouth them. If you're going to point out anything, don't even point out true things or false things if it's going to paint them in a false, negative light. If you're not there helping in the process, butt out. Now, here's the point. Helping is good. We need to step into each other's life. In fact, we are called to as Christians. We can't love one another or love our brothers and sisters if we're not willing to step into their life, to step in, because sometimes people do need to be corrected. It's point blank. They need to be corrected. Sometimes people need to be helped up. Sometimes you need to be involved and invested wherever appropriate, wherever you can help. But not, I know this might shatter your reality, not every one of your opinions actually matters. It doesn't. In, in fact, quite a few of them are probably rather bad, including mine. Keep them to yourself. Some of your opinions are good. Some of mine are good. Some of them are just okay, but most of them are just flat-out horrible. Keep them to yourself. What we need from you when you're investing in one another's lives is not your opinion. We need your love. We need your sacrifice, your service. We need your counsel as it reflects God's word. We need your warnings and your admiration, but we don't need your hypercritical judgment. So next time you're about to interject into something, ask yourself, am I really helping? Use this scenario next time. It's like after the Christmas banquet. I go downstairs to see how the ladies are doing and cleaning the dishes. There's 30 of them. I will not step foot in there because I am not needed and I'll probably get smacked, okay? I'll just be tripping over my own feet as they have their system going. Ask yourself, am I needed in this situation? Is my opinion, does it even add anything or am I just doing this to glorify myself, to get it off my chest? Ponder those thoughts. Now, this call to live quietly is also not a call to distance yourself from all forms of trouble. We want peace, and we're called to live at peace, but guess what? You're not guaranteed to have peace. And some people actually read these verses and negatively apply it to politics. They say Christians shouldn't be involved in politics because of this verse. And the point here is not that you shouldn't be in politics or other similar fears, spheres sorry, of influence, but the point is that you don't put your hope or your trust in politics. Rather, our business is to live quietly as we focus not on politics or government or social justice as a means to accomplish God-given goals that we have. Our goal, our emphasis as Christians at the end of the day is to glorify God as we carry out his great commission and great commandment. The great commandment, right? Love God, love neighbor. The commandment is to love. And that's what should impact everything we do, be it from politics to your job to just interacting with everyone around you. Love should be pushing you. Love big. The other, and what gives, and how we achieve this, what gives us victory in loving our neighbors is not politics, is not the world, not the government, not our prime minister or premiers, but God alone. We can't elect government to accomplish God's mission. It won't work. The great, so that's the great commandment is to love. The great commission is to go into all the world, right? Making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that Christ has taught them. The government's not going to help you with that. If anything, the government's going to hinder that. Only Christ can give us the victory. So you can live at peace. We can actually live at peace in this world, which doesn't mean that we won't experience conflict, but it means that in our own hearts, there won't be conflict because we know 
that we have peace between God and man and that God is sovereign and good. So when there is chaos, when there is corruption in our government or in our city or in our homes or in our families or even in our very spirits, we know that God is a God of order and purpose and that he will accomplish something that we might not be able to see from our vantage point. But it's real and it's true and we know that it's good and for his glory. We could be at peace in our hearts because we are ourselves at peace with God. And if God has overcome the chaos between you and him, he can accomplish anything. Our biggest problems have already been remedied. So peace is not always possible in terms of experience. You will have pushback. As you preach the gospel, you will be hated for it. As you forgive your enemies, you will be hated for it. You can give generously and you will be hated for it. You can stand up and you can protect innocent lives and you will be hated for it. But if you're going to be hated for anything, if you're going to lose peace in this world for anything, let it at least be for the sake of righteousness and not because of your opinion. We love big We live quietly and we labor hard, which is the last and final point. And I love this verse because it says, you know, aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work hard with your hands, you know, so you can walk properly or, 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 you know, walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. It's a command in scripture that we need to pay attention to. And we have to make sure we're paying attention to the right command here because if not, we can confuse things here like, like this. Like if you look at my hands, I have pastor hands, okay? Do you know what pastor hands feel like? Yeah. Silk pillows, okay? It's the least manly feature about me. You know, I, I literally hold a pen, my Bible, and a steaming hot cup of joe with you guys every week, okay? Praying for you, laboring in the word for you. And, and, and I don't have scars. I don't have calluses. All the calluses are in my brain, Okay? But some of you have man hands, all right? Like there's burns, scrapes, calluses, cuts, and you're scary. Like when I shake Kyle Hibbs' hand, I think he's going to break my arm, you know? Like I, I, I have little, yeah, anyways. But, <laughs> but the point here is not that we're all to engage in the same type of manual labor. Manual labor is what he's talking about here, but the command to work with our hands is a command to work hard in whatever we're doing. Jonathan Edwards actually would stand in the, in the window of his office and he could see all his, uh, his church members out there in the field and he would stand for eight hours and write his sermon so they knew he was working just as hard as they were. Right? Work hard in what you do. Work with your hands. And this can mean a few different things. Number one, it means work if at all possible. If you can't work, it's a different subject. But if you can work, be working. And this ought to be the principle that we operate by, that we don't abuse the generosity of anyone, but that we work hard. We work if at all possible. If it's not possible, then yes, you are going to lean on the generosity of other people. We are actually called, I know it's normally a negative word, but we are called as Christians to burden one another at times. So if you can't work, burden us in a positive sense. But if you can work with your hands, what he's saying is work hard. And this is controversial in the Greek uh, culture because there are certain things that is below them as Greeks. Oh, I would never clean a toilet. Things like that. That's too menial. But what Paul is saying is that as a Christian, there is no job that is beneath you. Because every job that you take as a believer becomes sanctified by your faith. It's a holy job because you're working not for a paycheck, not for a manager, but you're working to the Lord Jesus Christ to glorify him. 
Every job is sanctified the moment you step into it, whether you're mowing lawns or managing a Fortune 500 company. None are better, morally speaking. Now, there are some jobs that are immoral by Scripture standard, and you should not be in those jobs as Christians. You shouldn't engage in those. But for the jobs that are lawful, there is nothing that's beneath us. Work hard. We do this so we can glorify God and not be dependent on others. It's not wrong to be dependent. It's not. Yet it is wrong to be unnecessarily dependent. Don't take advantage of people. If you need it, receive it. But otherwise, work hard so you can be not a burden, but you can also bless others who need your help as well. Listen to what Colossians chapter uh, 3, verse uh, 33 says. And this is a promise for all of us who are in our jobs, laboring away every day. Maybe it's a starter job. Maybe it's a job you hate. Maybe you're miserable because your, your boss is a loser, doesn't know how to treat his employees. Or maybe you're stuck with that coworker who's always annoying and you're like, Paul, why'd you send me a messenger of Satan, right, who's always in my ear, right? If that's you, if that's you, this is what God says. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whether you're a student or a worker, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ, not your professor, not your manager, not your employer. You are serving Jesus. Work unto him and watch how that produces your reputation. The good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in doesn't always look like you studying and reading your Bible. Sometimes it looks like you peeling potatoes or filing paperwork. Sometimes, it know, you know what it is? It's also standing there receiving your boss yelling at you for something you didn't do and you're learning how to suffer well. That's the good works that God has prepared beforehand for you. And they're going to look different for everybody in this church. But we are called, every single one of us, in whatever we do, to love big, live quietly, and to work hard. Why? So that we may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Be dependent on no one. We want to bless the world. We want to bless the church through a life of love. And we're also through that building a reputation that we'll be known by. And reputation, as I close, I start it with reputation, I'm going to end with reputation. It does matter. I'm not worried about what people think about my style, my haircut, but I am worried about the character I have. You see, you're going to have a reputation. Well, let me correct that. You have a reputation. You are known as someone. Maybe you're known as the person who keeps to themselves. You're always quiet. You're the first one out the door. And, and, and that's all right, but what does that make other people think? Oh, is that person too good for me? Are they too good for this church or whatever, blah, blah, blah? You might think, well, that's unfair. What is that reputation speaking? Engage. Or maybe you're a big mouth extrovert where you always have the answer for everyone and you're taking over life groups all the time and people are rolling their eyes. Like, what's your reputation? Maybe you're the person who, 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 who the people know you're always going to be the one that listens to them and you're at home talking to your spouse like, why do people not leave me alone with their problems? Or maybe you're the person who's known to pick up the bill, the first one to always offer to help. And you're like, why am I paying for everybody's stuff? <laughs> you got a reputation. What is your reputation? And if you're living and sorry, if you're loving big, living quietly and working hard, you should be thought well by outsiders. And the key word there is should be. But you can't force that. You can't guarantee that. You can only worry about what you are doing. You don't get to determine how the world receives your character. I always say this, but you are to be like a thermostat, not a thermometer. You set the temperature, you don't react to it. 
Set the temperature. Oftentimes, the world will love your character, they'll love your patience, they'll love your, that you're calm, they'll love that you're peaceful, they'll love that you're not stirring up trouble, they'll love that you love big and you're generous, but they'll hate what you believe. They'll hate that you're a bigot at small-minded, primitive beliefs that there is a hell, and people actually go there for not believing in Christ. And the only way out of that hell is to believe on Jesus who experienced hell for us. You'll be hated for your beliefs, but you, you, you can't worry about that. You'll even be hated for your character, even when it's good. Because here's the thing that the Bible says, our character will be so countercultural that it's going to rub people the wrong way, and they're going to start calling evil good and good evil. It's already happening today. We don't have power in that situation. We are called to live a life of big love, to live quietly and to work hard, and that reputation will glorify God. What the world does with that is up to them. You can't help that. What we are called to do is live in light of the calling that God has placed on our life. So today we're talking about the love of God and how, how, how that if it, uh, is reflected in all that we do and how we live. And next week we're going to look at the future things, Christ's return, and how that changes the way we make decisions, how that, how that changes the way that we see the people living next to us, how that changes the way how we speak to people within this church. But I just want to end by saying, FBC, let's make our priority to love big this year, to live quietly and to labor hard in all that we are called to do. And that will produce a reputation that will cause transformation throughout our community. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord. I thank you for all those who came here today and all those watching online. Father, I thank you for the tiredness that we even feel after holidays because that means we spent them well with some, some good friends and family, oh Lord. And, and Father, but there's no better way to start off the new year than to sing some songs of praise and hear your word preached. And God, I just pray that as we enter 2024, that we wouldn't look at this as sort of a resolution that might fall by the wayside time, you know, February comes, Lord, but this would actually in, uh, shape and mold our entire life. That we would be people known for our love. That we would be people that are known for our reconciliation and bringing peace into situations. And that we would be people that are known for our hard work and whatever we put our hand to. God, let us be a people of love. And may we be generous with our love and not stingy, O oh Lord. Bless us, O oh God, as we close in song. In Jesus' name, amen.